0: All right, well today we are in the fourth Sunday of Advent, and the theme of the fourth Sunday of Advent is love, and uh, we've gone through hope, peace, joy, and today we are looking at love. And you might think that love is a fairly easy topic to preach upon, but I have to tell you as I get older and I find the concept of love uh, becomes more complicated and a bit nuanced, uh, without resorting to some simplistic clich- cliches or unrealistic expectations. And, pe- and f- to be honest with you, and I'm going to be honest with you, I try and be honest with you from the pulpit as much as I can without insulting everybody. Uh, but one of the things that I find most frustrating in my own walk of faith has been the failure of love, particularly within the church. Because there are some times when love fails, and we don't seem to be able to move forward in the way that it seems healthy. And it it fails within the church context, it fails within relationship context, it fails within marriages. There are just some times when love seems to fail. And this failure expresses itself in numerous ways, and, and I have found the most common expression of failed love. Is when it's seen in marriages that fall apart or the coldness that is sometimes in marriages or in churches splitting or relationships ending. It has nothing to do with theology. Very, very rarely does that have to do with theology when, a, when a people leave a church or a church splits. It most often has to do with the failure of love, which is centered in selfishness, surrounded by the context of unrealistic expectations. You know, we have this idea of what it should be. We have this idea of how people should respond to me. We have these ideas of of how the world should work. And when they don't work that way, when we feel like somehow our expectation of love has not been met, then instead of trying to work through what our expectations are that may or may not be healthy, instead of trying to look at ourselves, we just say it's everyone else's fault. Because the truth is, many of us do believe that the world does revolve around us. And when we believe that, we have unrealistic expectations. And when we live in this world of unrealistic expectations, love will fail. And it can happen super quick, and it can be on things that you don't expect, and from people you don't expect. People that seem to be everything is going fine, they can even be very helpful within the kingdom of God, and then all of a sudden it will turn on something that they felt that expectation was not met. And it doesn't help us uh, so that Our society, especially our our secular society, gives us false expectations of what love is supposed to be. It's in everything, especially in music. If you ever listen to pop music, uh, you find these unrealistic expectations of love. In fact, you find very often unhealthy expressions of love that just kind of go into our brains and start kind of rolling around. For example, if you're my age, in the 80s, the police came out with this song, uh, there were a group, and it was called Every Breath You Take. Are you familiar with that? And if I, was, if I just were to go, every breath you take, you start kind of grooving, you hear that little bass line, dun, 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 right? Yeah. You
1: ever just read the words without the melody line? Every breath you take. Every move you make. Every vow you break. Every smile you fake. I'll be watching you. Can't you see? You belong to me. Oh, my poor aches With every breath you take. That's not a love song. That's a stalker song. And yet that's played
0: at weddings and stuff like that all the time. People play that like on the mixtapes, like some, you know, love-struck teenager. Here's a tape with all the love songs. That's always on there if, it, if you're from the 80s. there's a There's a... There's one that's popular today, and the chorus goes, No one will love you more than I do. No one will love you more than I do. And if someone says this to you, you better run away. Because of the seven-plus billion people in the world, this psycho thinks he has the right to say that no one will love you. More than I do. And we hear these things, and this is what we think love is, right? These go into our brain, they roll around. And the problem comes is then when we take this kind of weird, false expectation of love and we connect it to our faith because Christianity and God, of course, we talk about love all the time. We say God is love. And it's true. It's in the scripture. God is love.
1: But God doesn't go, every breath you every movie you make.
0: You know, he is watching, but there's not this stalker aspect of it. And, and so we get this kind of twisted thing of what love is supposed to be, or we think it's supposed to be something like, you know, uh, a husband has this idea of love, which is really his wife is just going to be basically a servant to him in all things and without any consideration to her. As long as he goes and makes a paycheck and brings his money home, she should home, she should be fine, and it can go the other way around too. I've, I've known women that believe that being in love and being married means you're the princess and you should be treated like a princess the rest of your life. And your husband should intuitively know every feeling you have and every, desi- every desire you need to be met. And that's just unrealistic. And when unrealistic expectations are out there, people begin to respond to them. And there's a, there's a passage in the scripture which I think is very interesting because we very often take scriptures completely out of context. And we lose the overall meaning of it. And there's a passage that says this. And people talk about this all the time when they talk about God's love and what it means to be in relationship with God. And it says, this is out of Revelations chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and he with me. And most people think that this is just all about God trying to say, I just want to be friends with you. I want to be in relationship with you. That's all this is about. I love you. But that's not, that's not really the context of this passage. In fact, the verse preceding it is one that I doubt any of you could quote off the top of your head. It says this, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you get the overall context, the even wider context, he's talking to a church church. That is described in the scriptures. lukewarm. It's the church in Laodicea. And let's read this. He says this. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, which means the truth, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds and that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by in fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church that's described here has many characteristics of an unrealistic expectation of love, and that's the problem with this church in Laodicea. They have an unrealistic expectation. They've kind of quit trying in their relationship, which happens a lot with marriages. You kind of quit trying to, to impress. You quit trying to go out of your way for your spouse because in some way you feel like they're obligated to be there with you because of a vow that they made. and In a certain way, that's true, but it's not something to be abused. And When you go in with this unrealistic expectation that this person is just going to be there, no matter how I treat them, we shouldn't be surprised then when things don't go well in the relationship. So what does God do? I mean, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead there. So what is God's appeal here? Well, he questions their passion. And if this church had been asked, as the church in Laodicea, do you love your Lord? Do you love Jesus Christ? They would say, sure I do. And they would point to the songs that they sing about him, they would point to the sermons they do about him, they would point to all the things around him. But the passion, The evidence of passion is missing. And the evidence of passion isn't how high you raise your hands or how loud you sing. It's in, is your life a reflection of the character of Jesus Christ? And we talk about this all the time, being the fruits of the Spirit, of love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's where passion is expressed. And does your life reflect the life of Christ? It's not in how loud you can get. It's not in how long your prayers are, it's not in how high you raise your hands, it's in is your life, is your life reflecting the character of Jesus Christ? And they in this church in Laodicea, they unrealistically assume that their relative wealth was proof of God's favor. They were a rich church, apparently. And they believed that, the, that their wealth was the proof of God's favor and their pleasure in them. But the reality was that they were spiritually, emotionally, and mentally wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And so what does God do? He urges them to find their richness in Him. He appeals to them that they would look to Him to find their true wealth. They would look to Him to find the thing that covers their shame. They would look to Him to find Meaning and significance. And some would look at this and say, well, God's appeal is harsh and unloving. He starts talking about discipline. Why is discipline brought in with love? Well, because He wants them to be self aware and He wants them to have some sincerity in their faith. And when He says that they need to be sincere and self aware in their faith, that's really what the word earnest means. When he talks about, in the, in the repentance part, be earnest and repent, that word means that you are aware, you are grounded in truth. You're not living in some kind of fantasy world. And this is hard for people to accept because you have to be willing to look at yourself. And you have to be willing to hear what others have to say as well. But it's important to have a sense of self-awareness and, and, a, and a willingness to look at yourself honestly because you cannot repent Unless you're willing to look at yourself honestly, because repentance is more than just being sorry for your sins. When he says, "Be earnest and repent," repentance is more than just being honest for your sin. I mean, sorry for your sins. Repentance means change. You change the way that you live. You reorient the track that you're on. And unless you're willing to look at the track that your life is on and acknowledge the fact that it's taking you away from God, then you cannot really effectively. Repent, you can be sorry. But unless you're willing to recognize that the track that you're on is taking you away from God, you cannot change it. You cannot repent, truly repent, because repent means changing the direction of your life. And so God reminds us, He corrects us, He rebukes us, He disciplines us because He loves us and wants to bring us back into that relationship, bring us back onto that right track. And if we're willing to repent, if we're willing to have our life changed, God is going to be there for us. And that's the whole context to to verse 20 when he says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. He's not knocking at the door of a heart that is unaware of Christ or has never received Christ. We use our little Christian language here. He's knocking at the heart of a believer or a believing church in this case who has drifted away from them. And he says, if you get back on track, if you are earnest, and if you repent, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. I'm available to you. I want to be in fellowship with you. I will come in. But if you are going to try and deve- to define fellowship with me in some way that's a way, then I guess I'll just stand here at the door and keep knocking until you're willing to come on to my way. And while this passage is referring to a church, specifically in this case, the church in Laodicea, it describes the condition of many churches. It describes the condition of many marriages. It describes the condition of many relationships within the community of faith. And it describes how most of people, most of us, don't really understand love. We have an understanding that comes more from pop music, than we're really from the Scripture. And how do we find ourselves in these cold and disappointed places of love? Well, like I said, it's usually because we've gotten into some self-centered, unrealistic view of love, and other people aren't meeting our unrealistic expectation. They can't. No one's going to love you more than I do. Out of seven-plus billion people in the world, no one's going to love you more than I do. That's unrealistic. And yet, if we go into love with that kind of, oh, we're going to be disappointed. Because this is not true. Out of the billions of people in the world, there's someone else out there that can love you. Now, God put you together with your spouse, and that's awesome. If you're married, if you're not married, maybe he will someday put you together as a spouse.
1: But there's, there's
0: folks that can, most of you are fairly lovable. There's folks that can love you. I sometimes think we do our disfavor when we say to our kids growing up, there's one person in the world that's made for you. It's unrealistic. Because we put this pressure, you have to find out of the entire world that one person God made for you. Because no one else can love you except that one person. That's just crazy. What amount of pressure that puts on folks. And then, as a pastor, let me tell you what often happens after about, you know, 10 or so years, and you're kind of disappointed with the marriage, and then someone else comes along, and people will tell me, oh, now I found my soulmate. I just didn't wait long enough. Now I found my soulmate. So now it's God's will that I get divorced here and leave the family, leave the kids, and go with my soulmate, the one person God made just for me. Is it any wonder that the church struggles with love just as the world does? Is it any wonder that the divorce rate within the church is just as high as the world's is? Is it any wonder that churches fall apart and people leave and churches split because we have this unrealistic expectation of love? Is it any wonder we struggle with God when things aren't going our way, when it feels like we're in a place of struggle, when it feels like we're in a place of lostness, when it feels like somehow... Some things we were relying on, like maybe our job got taken away from us or our finances took a hit, and we start to wonder, does God even care about me at all? And then you read the Scripture, and you read the heroes of the Scripture, what they went through, and they never took their eyes off God. Just read what the Apostle Paul went through. He lists it all in one spot, and you never see at the end of it when he says, I've been shipwrecked, I've been stoned, I've been beaten and left for dead, I've been hungry, I've been naked. And he says, and God wasn't there for me. He never says that. He understands God is there for him, that God's
1: love does not necessarily equal comfort and ease. So how does God deal with this?
0: How does God help us as believers, and how did he offer to help the world to get out of this place of dark, disappointed love? Well, he lived out love in Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate during the Advent, the incarnation of God. God came down. We sing these songs. God came down and rescued me. God was incarnate. God, the word of God became flesh. The very nature and character of the Father is found in Jesus Christ. That's why he tells Philip, his disciple, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus doesn't claim to be the Father. In other places, he makes it very clear. The Father is spirit must be worshiped in spirit and truth. But when Philip says to him, just show us the Father, in in the Gospel of John, Jesus has this profound conversation with Philip. He says, Philip, after all these years, you still don't know who I am? When you see me, you've seen the Father. And what Jesus is meaning by that is he is the very nature and character of God-made flesh. The way that Jesus deals with people is the way that the Father deals with people. This is why it was kind of mind-blowing when Jesus would do things like the woman caught in adultery, Look around and say, oh, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. That wasn't what the Pharisees were expecting him to do. This is why it kind of blew their minds that Jesus would actually take the time to be with the tax collectors and be with the prostitutes because they said, this isn't what God does. And Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is exactly what God does. It's just that you don't understand love. Is you have it wrapped up in your religious sense of what is right and what is wrong and all in your, your laws,
1: and you don't get it at all. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. What does that mean?
0: Well, we, we learn what it means in Christ, in the way he lived his life. Because Jesus' own life rebukes the idea. He disciplines the idea. He rebukes and corrects the idea that love is expressed through living with wealth and health. One of the biggest heresies of the church today that you hear all over the place is this nonsensical, heretical health and wealth gospel that says if God loves you, you'll be wealthy and healthy. Tell that to Paul. Paul had some kind of affliction that he says he prayed for over and over and over again to be taken away from him. We don't know what exactly the affliction was. And finally, he gets a word from the Lord, basically saying, my grace is sufficient for you. It's not going to be taken away. My grace will get you through it, but it's not going to be taken away. Well, that doesn't fit today's health and wealth gospel at all. Paul's out. Jesus Jesus said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Well, he's not wealthy. So according to the health and
1: wealth gospel, God wasn't very pleased with Jesus. So Jesus is out. on top of that, from a
0: world's point of view, things didn't turn out all that great for Jesus. Getting crucified is no picnic. It's a humiliating, painful end to a life. Now, of course, we have the resurrection. But he doesn't fit within that. And Jesus' own life rebukes this. He rebukes the idea that love is expressed through this wealth and comfort by being born in a manger, being laid in a manger, which is a feeding trough. People don't realize what a manger is. A manger isn't a cradle, you know, made for, like, cows and stuff. It's where they eat out of. That's what he was laid in. He rebukes the idea that being in the places of power was evidence of God's favor by announcing his birth to shepherds. And shepherds were at the lowest end of the economic scale. We've talked about this many times. We kind of romanticize the idea of the shepherds because we remember in Sunday school, we made sheep with cotton balls and we had the little shepherds and stuff. And that's all great, but the truth is, shepherds were at the bottom of the scale. Their life was living with sheep. And Cindy and I, when we were in Lesotho in the Peace Corps, we got to meet real shepherds up close and personal. And those boys, they were called the herd boys. They were just the herd boys. Those boys lived rough. And being alone with the sheep for months and months at a time, they were a little weird. And even other villagers are kind of like, yeah, the herd boy. It wasn't a place of, of honor to be a shepherd. And yet that's whom the angels reveal and sing to the glory of the incarnate Christ. Jesus, instead of, grow, when he grew up, instead of seeking out the 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 religiously learned, the Pharisees to be his disciples, who does he call to be his disciples? He calls fishermen, tax collectors. He calls people who are teachable. And that is an essential thing. You see, the rigidly learned, the rigidly learned and the self-righteously learned don't feel like there's just Jesus guy could teach him anything. Because he was young, only probably about 30 when he's starting his ministry. I remember as, as when I turned 31, it dawned on me, man, I've outlived Jesus. And that was a weird place to be. Because as a young believer, I always kind of looked up to Jesus as kind of this older brother type thing. you know. And then as I passed that physical age, I wonder now, honestly, being 52, if some 30-year-old came up to me and said, Jeff, follow me because I'm the way, the truth, the life. I think I'd be like, listen, Junior, let me tell you a few things. And the Pharisees were the same way. And maybe I would be the same way. But he didn't choose the religiously learned. He chose the common people to follow him. And those, re- those disciples later become the recipients of some very profound words about love. And I want us to look at this passage, then we'll break it down. And this is where we're gonna, how we're going to end. Right as the cross is looming big, Jesus has his disciples, and, and he goes through, and John chapter 15 is this long chapter of teaching. It's the whole I am the vine, you are the branches chapter. He goes through a lot of stuff. I mean, it is packed with meaning. And then he talks, and he starts, starts talking about the, the, the greatest command, the new command that he gives is to love one another. And then he revisits it here. He says, As the Father has loved me, so as I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's command and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. We talked about joy uh, last week, right? (laughs) And uh, that it's not just happiness. Joy is those those points of transcendent light where you, you see a glimpse of the greater kingdom of God, the greater thing of God, and you keep it. And these were words that I imagine the disciples never forgot. Obviously, John never did because he writes them down. I've told you this, that my joy may be in you and that my and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. And now he gets to the commands because they're thinking, wow, oh, you've got to keep the commands. And they're thinking dietary commands and whatnot. He says this, love each other as I have loved you. And we've talked a lot about the fact that Very often, we fall back on what is the greatest commandment and the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. But we always forget that Jesus follows that up by saying, In this, the law and the prophets are made complete. But then Jesus goes beyond that because if you love as you love yourself, there's always some wiggle room, right? If you don't really love yourself or you have a a low view of yourself, then if you love others as yourself, you transfer your dysfunction to others in the name of love. And this is another cause for dysfunctional love and relationships. We tend to love each other as we feel like we deserve to be loved. And if you don't deserve to be loved, you you have a low self-esteem, you'll tend to transfer that out to others in some weird ways. I can't even begin to list all the weirdness that will come out if we understand love only through the context of ourselves. And Jesus says, therefore, love each other as I have loved you. You need a new context. And this context isn't going to be the law and the prophets. It's going to be me. Jesus. And that as you love one another he becomes the the one through whom we understand love. He becomes the lens through whom we see and understand love. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. Now it doesn't mean you go run out and get yourself killed for your friends. And I don't say that as a joke because I actually have had to deal with people who in their kind of messed up way of thinking figured the best thing I can do for my wife or for my husband or for my kids is get out of my life, lay down my life for them, kill myself, to remove my dysfunction from their lives. And you say that's crazy. There was a lady in Texas several years ago who drowned all her children because she was convinced by her pastor that she did not have it within her to teach her kids what is necessary for them to go to heaven. So she felt the best thing she could do is to kill them before they reach the age of accountability, which isn't even a thing. So
1: there's some twisted stuff that can come out of the concept of love, right? Jesus is just saying it's self-sacrificial.
0: It's a love that's willing to sacrifice for others, it's not a love that you have to go out and commit suicide over. You are my friends if you do as I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give whatever you ask in my name. See, that's the context of that whole thing. The other health and wealth gospel thing, which is nonsense is that you just get together with two people and say, hey, let's all pray that we get Ferraris. Because the Scripture says, you know, if we agree on these things, we're going to get them. If that's how you understand love, if that's how you understand this prayer, then you do not understand love, you do not understand this prayer. And the Father will give whatever you ask for in my name. This is my command, love each other. This is a powerful piece of Scripture when it comes to understanding love. Let's break it down. How do we express our love for Christ and remain close to Christ? According to this passage, we obey his commands. All right, simple enough. Well, what are those commands? It's not the whole Mosaic law. It's to love one another as he loved us, not as you love yourself, but as he loved us. All right, that means an unselfish love, an unself-centered love. In fact, C.S. Lewis one time said that, uh, you know, that we that being uh, selfish or selfless doesn't mean thinking of yourself at all, because some people have this worm theology. I'm a worm, I'm, there's nothing good in me, I'm total the bottom of the barrel. That's not what God's asking for either. Having a selfless love doesn't mean you don't think of yourself at all, it just means you think of yourself less. And that's kind of an easy way to think of it. Being selfless doesn't mean you don't think of yourself at all, but you think of yourself less. You're not the center of the universe, you're just riding on the planet with everyone else. You're one of a very special seven plus billion people. And we kind of laugh at that, but as far as we know, we're it in the universe. You know, I don't I don't think we've ever I don't believe we've ever come in contact with aliens, and I don't know if we ever will. Kind of outside my, you know, thing. As far as we know, though, in this vast universe, we are the only self-aware, self-conscious being that understands that we have a soul, that makes every 7 billion plus of us
1: pretty special, actually. But you're no more special than anyone else. But you are special. And just deal with it. Don't think of
0: yourself as a worm, but just think of yourself less. So what does that look like? Well, it's an unselfish, other-centered love, which is even willing to sacrifice for others. Doesn't mean you don't think of yourself, doesn't mean you don't care for yourself, doesn't mean you walk around thinking, oh, I'm a worm. But it does mean that you think of yourself less and you care for others and you're willing to sacrifice for others. What's the result of this, according to the scripture? Well, we are so like Christ that he regards us as friends, he doesn't have to regard us as servants. He's not just kind of saying, well, here's your marching orders, which you don't understand, and I know that you don't understand, but do it anyway. That's kind of what the military is like. You know, you receive orders, and the general doesn't tell the, the captain who he gives orders to, or more likely the colonel telling the captain or the major. He doesn't explain to them why they're doing what they're doing. He just says, this is what you're supposed to do. It's not up to the captain or the colonel to fully understand the overall scope of strategy. They just do what they're told to do. That's a servant. Jesus doesn't consider us servants when we get to this point. He considers us friends because we have the same heart and mind of God. We have the mind of Christ. The scriptural thing that's put out there, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? It means what God desires, he desires, which is one reason why Paul could go through so much difficulty and still keep his eyes on Christ because he didn't desire the worldly sense of comfort, wealth, and health. He desired what God had. So, what's the benefit of this then? What's the benefit of being considered a friend? Well, we understand the heart and mind of God. This is crucial.
1: So many people walk around going, I don't really know what God wants from me. It's pretty clear in the Bible you know,
0: do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. If you don't know anything else, you can kind of just sort of orbit around that particular verse if you don't feel any direct path in your life right now. And that happens. But I do know this. In my life, when I don't feel like a direct, okay, this is what I'm going for, this is the the vision we have, my place of orbit is around, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what is it the Lord desires of you? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I know that even without specific actions or marching orders, as long as I am doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with my God, I'm in a pretty good place until God says, now do that or be involved in that or get involved in this direction. We understand the heart and mind of God. And as we understand the heart and mind of God, we become less consumed with our own hearts and our own minds because our hearts are deceitful. And the more we understand the mind and heart of God, the more we're going to clearly be able to walk our lives out without kind of flailing around in this existential angst of, what is it God wants me to do with my life? If you don't have any specific plan, maybe you need to redevelop- refocus on where it is that you're interpreting the world through. Are you interpreting the world through yourself? Or are you interpreting the world through God? If you interpret it through God, you'll know his heart and mind. And if you don't have a specific place, you'll know well enough that he, will, he always desires justice, mercy, and walking humbly with God. And what comes from this? Well, it comes, what comes from it are lives that are well-lived with meaning and impact. Jesus talks about this being fruit, fruit that will last. Lives that are lived with meaning and impact for the kingdom of God, fruit that will last. If you, as you review your
1: life, what are the things that you can think of that you're involved in right now that bear eternal fruit?
0: That's a hard question because I think a lot of Christians, when they go through their lives, they kind of go, oh, I don't really know. Now, I would tell you from the counseling I've done over the years with people here and other places, that most times Christians underestimate the impact, the positive impact they're having on the kingdom of God. Most Christians kind of think, well, if my career isn't somehow in vocational ministry, then I guess I'm not bearing eternal fruit. That's nonsense. Vocational ministry is a calling for some, certainly not all. The church doesn't need a whole bunch of vocational paid clergy. What they need are deep, sincerely committed Christians to whatever it is Christ calls them to. If they're called to vocational ministry, like I've told you, my call in life was very simple from God. Take care of my bride. That was it. And that's what I've sought to do. Some of you have a calling in life that's not going to be vocational ministry, but it has a deep impact on the kingdom of God. How are you spending your life? What are you doing with your life? There's a lot of people in this church whose secular job allows us to keep the lights on, but who also have a deep impact upon the kingdom of God through their service. And most Christians that have an ounce of humility, which most of you do, to be, I know you're a good bunch, but you tend to underestimate your life. You tend to underestimate your meaning. And when you underestimate the meaning and you underestimate the kind of impact you're having, then you're not really going to focus on the impact you're having because you don't think it's important. And so you might be having this great impact on a certain area in the kingdom of God Maybe you have a good relationship with some of the youth, or maybe, you know, you have a, you have a gift for worship, but you go, ah, eh, it's not that important. And so because in your brain you think it's not that important, you don't put much effort into it. And then because you don't put much effort into it, it doesn't bear the kind of fruit that it could. Don't underestimate the places where God has placed
1: you to build in the kingdom of God. Let's go to the next one. What's our reward from all this? Well, our reward is to want that what God
0: wants in our lives and receive it. That's what he means by this. Then the Father will give you what ask, whatever you ask for in my name. When you know the heart and will of God, when you've been able to interpret your life and this unique life that God has given you through God, you understand the impact you have in the kingdom, then you will want what God wants. And when you want what God wants, And when you ask for it, God says, sure, because I want that too. And this becomes the difficult thing because people in the health and wealth gospel say, well, you just need to ask for and believe that God's going to give you a bunch of money. One of the crazy things they'll say, if you you believe enough to send me a 1,000 euros, God will bless you with 10,000. If you believe. Now, if you send me the 1,000 euros and you don't get the 10,000 back, well, that's because you didn't believe enough. Yeah? And this is out there. You know this is out there, right? This is not news to any
1: of you, right? You got to think. That's not how God acts. That's not how God acts. And I don't understand why anyone pays any attention to these folks, to be honest with you. Except that they fuel a false and unrealistic hope and love.
0: If you want what God wants in your life, you need to be in line with Him. Because you're not going to even know. You're not going to even know otherwise. And how does this all happen? How do we get to this blessed place? By loving one another, by following the commandments of Christ. It's not rocket science, but it is deep. So as we come to the end of 2020 and we celebrate the gift of Christ as we do in Advent and as we're going to be coming up in the Christmas Eve service, We need to remember that the gift of Jesus Christ wasn't just to have a sacrifice for our sins, but that the sacrifice of Christ was to bear fruit. Jesus didn't die upon a cross just for the sake of dying upon a cross. He had a purpose for it. The purpose was that we would receive the forgiveness of sin, but more than that, we would live lives that reflect the freedom that is given to us in Christ. That's why the scripture says if you have been freed, those who have been freed by the Son are free indeed. And, you know, how can you be free and expected to follow commands at the same time? Those don't seem to go together. Well, if the command is to love, then you understand the heart and mind of God. When you understand the heart and mind of God, then you can live free from the expectations of society, free from the expectations of, of, you know, business, free from the expectation of making money, free from the expectation that I'm going to always be 100% healthy all the time, free from these crazy expectations and just keep your eyes on God. Because the fact is, We're all going to die at some point unless Jesus comes back before. We're all going to come to a point where this physical body comes to an end. And how many of us at the end of it are going to go, I'm so disappointed when the same thing that happened to every other human being in existence for all of time is happening to me. Unrealistic expectations lead to misery. And again, I can tell you as a pastor, I've sat at the side of beds where people are dying like other people have died. And they have said, why
1: me? And, you know, I don't want to be mean in that situation, but what goes through my head is, why not you? You're in the same place as all. I'm going to be one day in that bed, holding Cindy's hand. And I can guarantee you, it won't go through my mind, why me? What will go through my mind Is I hope she's okay without me, and I'm looking forward to seeing my Lord. And I hope, as I review my life, that I bore fruit that will last. So as 2020 ends, we have challenges in 2021.
0: I see the main challenge that's ahead of us is rebuilding. You know, just because January 1st rolls around doesn't mean some flip switches. COVID disappears, and all the consequences of all the political and and all the other nonsense that's gone in the world will suddenly just, bloop, we reset back to this and we wake up like some bad TV show and go, it was all a dream. I mean, I wish, right? But that's not going to be what happens. 2021 is going to be a year of recovering from 2020. I hope, I hope we recover. I hope that this, this vaccine kicks in and we can be done with this mask thing and we can
1: sit right next to each other and we can sing really loud. And I don't know where we are in the whole timeline of human history. But I
0: do know this. If we thought that 2020 is bad, it's going to be nothing compared to really what the last days are like when it comes to the church. And you've seen the damage that just this COVID thing has done, not to just IBCD, but to the church. You know, people just tanking in depression, relationships falling apart. You know, the irony to be said, yeah, because people have to live together really in close quarters for too long, marriages are falling apart, is just kind of bizarre. Right? That's a terrible reason for a marriage to fall apart. We have to be around each other too much. But you hear that. You hear that all the time. And people just kind of l- sort of losing their sense of, of where they're at in, the, in life and just kind of going off left and right. And if you thought 2020 is bad, it's nothing compared to the pressure that the church will be under. And I don't know if we're that generation or if we're the one that has to pass on lessons to the generation that will have to face that. But if the church is going to be strong when it really comes down to it, when the the pressure is really on, when we're talking like apocalyptic revelation-type pressure, then we need to be a people that learn from this time, not just a people who rebuild from it and recover. We need to learn from it. I often hear people say, oh, we just need to get back to normal. And I'm the same way. I want to get back to normal. But you know, normal had its problems. And I think one thing this COVID thing can show us, and and just the pressure, not just from it, but from the whole 2020, just a remarkably horrible year, the pressure from it, if we don't learn from it and see where our faith was strong and see in the places where our faith was weak and soft, then we've wasted an opportunity to prepare for a stronger and, and more focused church. So 2021 will be something within ourselves as individuals and as a church that we need to not just rebuild from to try and get back to some sense of normal, which everyone has a different sense of what normal is, but we need to learn from it. Where did our faith stand strong? What are those strong things that we can build upon and say, okay, we were strong here? Not with pride, but just understanding ourselves. We need to be earnest, and we need to have a true sense of self-reflection. Where were we strong? Because we're not a church that was a bunch of worms. We were strong, and we've been strong in some places. But where were we weak? Where were we soft? Where did something that we thought was, was really there for us just kind of melt away? And we need to also be honest about that as individuals and as a church. And in 2021, as we reflect on these things, we need to communicate our thoughts to one another so that we can build. Again, and not just build back to what was in 2019, but to what God wants us to be. Because none of this is a mistake. None of this is like God going, darn, didn't know that was going to happen. This is all for something to build from and to grow from and to know and to maybe even learn empathy. Because there have been so many people who have died. Again, I have a tendency to think from my own country's point of view uh, just because it's who I am, Right? Vietnam War, back when I was a child, there were so many protests, fires in the streets, government on the verge of collapse, Richard Nixon having to resign. It was a mess. That was over the death, eventual death, of 58,000 people. That's how many Americans were killed in Vietnam, around 58,000. We had riots in the street. I mean, it looked like the collapse.
1: This COVID has killed 300,000. So just kind of think about that. Even if you're not Americans,
0: you kind of have probably seen in movies and stuff, the effect of the Vietnam War. We have so many movies made about it. Born on the Fourth of July, Platoon, all these movies made about the Vietnam War, 58,000 dead. We have 300,000 dead in the U.S. That doesn't count the rest of the world some of which we don't know. We know the numbers in Germany. We know the numbers in some other places that can count the folks. We have no idea what's really going on in the rest of the world. That either
1: doesn't really tell us how many have died or they can't even bother to count them. Huge. Huge. We need to learn from this time. We need to be empathetic about this time.
0: We need to do more than just recover from this time. If we just recover from this time, it hasn't been worth the pain. And the only way we're going to do this is to lift our heads out of self-pity, trust in God's love, do realistic self-examination, repent where necessary, not just be sorry, but change and shine for the sake of Christ. And then, as the Lord promised to all who would willingly be earnest and repent, we will hear from our God, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears me and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. To him who overcomes, I give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his
1: throne, he who has an ear and she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you are the church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help
0: us understand this word love. It's, it's a complex, powerful, deep word that we've pretty much, not just we, but the whole world has pretty much abused. The enemy has gotten in there and just tried to cheapen the word or give it some bizarre expe- expectations. And Father, we pray that you would help us to, to be a people that can earnestly repent of the places where we have followed that we have put forth into the world that we have hurt through unrealistic expectations of this word love. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand uh, at IBCD more specifically about this church, the places where we as individuals and we as a church body have unrealistic expectations of what it means to love and especially toward you. And Father, we need, and the church around the world needs to repent of this crazy idea that being loved by you means being pampered by you. That being loved by you means being enabled in our dysfunction by you. That being loved by you means never hearing a word of rebuke or correction. And help us to have a realistic view of love, that you want us to be like you. And if we're going to be like you, then we can't always be like ourselves. And, Lord, help us to accept that, to embrace that, so that we live lives that are well-lived, bearing fruit which will last for the kingdom of God. We know you stand at the door and you knock. Sorry for keeping the door shut at all. And, Lord, help us to open it, to allow you to come in, fellowship with us, so that we can
1: learn from you and become more like you in understanding love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.